This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We've been spending an awful lot of time on London Live discussing food and looking at kind of what we need to do on the other side of this pandemic to ensure that our food gets to us. That's important. But what if you are one of the 10% of Canadians, and this was outlined by Dr. Kent Mullenix, 10% of Canadians who is in what would be called a category of food insecurity, true food insecurity, which by loose definition is you don't know where your next meal is coming from. 10% of Canadians. Well, then you do rely on food banks. You rely on any number of things. And when we look at the suggestion that came out from Feed Ontario that our food banks are going to be under significant stress going forward based on some of the numbers, and this is the collective 130 that Feed Ontario looks after, we need to focus in on what's happening locally. And what's happening locally essentially kicks off tomorrow. The Business Cares Food Drive begins. Joining us from the Business Cares Food Drive is our good friend Wayne Dunn. Wayne, how is Monday going for you? I'm sure it's uh, a little on the busy side. It sure is, Mike. Thanks for having me. And I'm just doing all the final preps for the big launch tomorrow, uh, which is 10 o'clock at RBC Place. And uh, campaign's going to look a lot different as your audience would be well aware. Um, so just it's, it's a, I would say, kicking off like this, a lot more work because we really are learning and having to do the COVID protocols, which we are definitely doing. Um, and, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow will be an exciting day just uh, to finally get it going. Because as you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the need, Mike, is um, it's continually grow. Uh, we have an idea where it's going to end up with their expectations and everything, but whatever we can do this holiday season will make a big difference. And uh, yes, it is about collecting food, but it's also this year a lot, half it's going to go to virtual campaign and we'll be asking for checks uh, for those who, who can and only those people that can, because we are very aware in our entire community, some are really struggling and have struggled. So Uh, campaign really is going to take a different toll in this year. Wayne, let's look at some of the logistics then, and why don't we start there with the virtual side of things and with the fact that, sure, you know, food banks are always looking for non-perishables, always looking for things that maybe are a little bit more rare, like hygiene products, but at the same time, it's very helpful if donations come in. So if somebody was in a position to make a donation, what's the best way to do that? And then go to our Business Cares website um, and uh, follow the donation sign right through there. They can make a donation and have a tax receipt uh, right away. Um, and likewise, the London Food Bank site, we're all uh, inter- interconnected on this, so it wouldn't matter whatsoever. Uh, for those businesses that want to be involved over the next three weeks, I would suggest maybe whether you have your staff involved or the business themselves or individual people, it doesn't matter, to collect Whatever uh, money and checks, we'll either pick it up. They can. Uh, we'll have it, uh, myself or one one of our uh, uh, great committee members will pick it up as well, or they can make the donation online. So lots of ways of doing it on the collection side. And um, where the virtual part's going to go will probably happen starting next week. 
Uh, we are going to be doing Grocery Weekend at 25 grocery stores this uh, Saturday and Sunday in the London area. And figure out the logistics for that this year, even with the COVID restrictions. But uh, so far, so good. And that's going to give us a fair amount of food for for uh, not only visual, but to, to have the food bank use all of this right around Christmas and after Christmas time. The virtual kickoff and asking people the money to donate if they can. And that's what's going to uh, go right to your point of money is going to be very important. And what the money does from BizCares, um, we have a community harvest program where uh, the food bank and their board does an outstanding job using some of the funds from BizCares and directly for milk and eggs. Like 80% of the milk and eggs purchased through the food bank are as a result of business cares. And, and that's why we need funds going through uh, for, the, for the balance of the month here. Uh, baby and, food and other other types of uh, feminine uh, hygiene products, same type of thing. That's where we need money for. That's a great point because you look at how much milk and eggs are the part of most diets if you're making use of a food bank in order to get some help right now. It, you think, okay, well, you know, food banks are forever asking for non-perishables because that's the easiest way to ask for a donation and, and have things that are going to be available for a long period of time. But you still need the milk and the eggs in the diet. So those donations, they, they come in so handy. We're talking with Wayne Dunn from Business Cares Food Drive. Wayne, you mentioned how things are working with grocery stores. How does this compare to how things worked either last year or in previous years? Uh, unbelievable, the change. Um, but the change, not necessarily from our volunteers. The, the commitment, it'd be it'd be real easy this year to say take a pass because logistic-wise, it is a nightmare. But I'll tell you, our our volunteers want to help in the community here, and we would normally have a thousand volunteers this coming weekend. We'll probably have five hundred because there really is only one entrance and one exit to all these grocery stores now. So we have to be physically distanced making sure everything is all adhered to with those. Hence, we need less people to do it. But we, um, even our, where our trucks are going to be and how those are going to be handled and down at our warehouse, at the JMP warehouse where we, we do things, everything is all different this year as to just making sure nobody is really, really around each other type of thing. But it's also a critical part of our campaign to be able to get this food uh, we need to, we still need to help people. We really do. And I think that's what I'm most proud of, of our committee, all wanting to step up and to help. And we need our fingers crossed for a pretty good week ahead of us to, to make it happen. Have you had extra meetings in order to deal with all of this, Wayne, a lot of time on Zoom? Well, yeah, we've all, we've all learned how to Zoom, haven't we, eh? over the last, <laughs> last little while. So interesting, we, uh, we, we still are conducting our meetings, and uh, some people attend you know, via person and some via Zoom. But all of them are engaged, and they all are looking after their part of the, the campaign in the various parts of the business sector and, and community sector as, as they can. And uh, so far, so good. We are coming out of a little light, I see right now, but uh, we, we are going to have no goal this year. And it, it's just too hard to pinpoint. And given the um, economic situation and uh, what's needed, we're just going to let happen what happens. Interesting. And take us through the decision to not have a goal because it's it's so easy to say, hey, we're we're getting closer. And then someone who maybe hasn't made a donation says, oh, okay, okay, I'll help put you over the top in not creating a goal. Take us through that decision process. Well, 
that this is the 21st year of the business cares, and it's the only year we haven't had one. And I think to put pressure on our committee and pressure on the community to try to do something that they really maybe don't have the where for all for doing it, that's okay. And somehow other people or businesses will step up, the ones that have done well through the uh, pandemic, um, and, and will help out. Like we had last year uh, probably seven, 800 businesses involved in the end for business cares. I don't know where it's going to be this year. I, I doubt it'll be anywhere near that. But even if we had four or 500, it's going to be outstanding, better than doing nothing uh, type of thing. So um, I'm really, I'm pleased that we're doing it. Um, the community needs us to do it. And uh, but we, we have a, like we have the network to be able to, to provide it. And the help and support around the city really is amazing. And let's see what happens. Wayne, as a final point, was there ever talk that, hey, maybe we can't do this? Or when you got together, everybody said that's not even a question. No, it's more be what you've just said. It's um, when I reached out to everybody, um, it was all full steam ahead. We know we have to do it different. So the thought process really has changed on it this year. Um, but that's what that's what you have committees for. And we've spent a lot of time putting it together. Um and later, I'm, I'll be the last person to say later, it hasn't been uh, easy to do it. Um, but we'll look ahead three weeks from now and say, oh, boy, thankful, thankfully we've done it. Absolutely. Well, Wayne, take us through one more time. If somebody wanted to make a financial donation, if they were in that position, best place to do it is? Business Cares website. So that's businesscares.ca or the London Food Bank website. They're both hooked in with each other. That would be the best and quickest way because they can receipt you right away as well. And the kickoff is tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Wayne, thanks so much. I know we'll be talking again very soon. Good. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. That's Wayne Dunn yep. from Business Cares Food Drive. And that's the kind of thing everybody's been going through. Hey, can we do this? I don't know. It's going to be different. It's going to be harder. But are we going to do it? Yeah, you bet we're going to do it. And thanks to Wayne and his committee. And they are there each and every year. Interesting, they're not going to have a goal. But they will no doubt have a count at the end. And it's it's difficult in that a lot of businesses are probably going to be faced with saying, I've contributed in the past. I'm just not in a position to do that right now. So maybe that's where the rest of us, the community, anybody who's in a position where you can make a donation, where you can help out, it comes down to us to help this out as much as we can. On Mondays, right around now, we've made it a point of dealing with privacy. Because if the pandemic has exposed a few things, or at least created some conversations about some things, certainly food security, which we've been focusing in on today, is one of those things. And food supply chains and everything that comes with how we get our food from farm and field to our plate. But something else that has come up, is certainly privacy. And what we have in terms of new privacy laws, and we started to understand some of these 
last week. We're going to continue with that this week as we talk once again with Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy Ethics and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. It is great to have you here, Dr. Cook. How did the weekend go? It was great. I mean, there wasn't as much rain as there is now. Actually, we didn't get any rain on the weekend, did we? Mm, I'm trying to think. I had to walk the dog a lot. I think I got wet once. Does that mean anything? Maybe it was my neighbor's sprinkler. I don't know. It's hard Maybe to somebody was spitting time. toward me. Could be. <laughs> it, it wasn't bad, but uh, here we are, rainy Monday. Happy Monday, everyone. Well, let's talk about privacy laws and location because location 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 applies in so many things real estate and now well our own information Uh, let's look at location and the digital charter implementation act which we started to talk about last week why is location such a big part of what we're reading in that act that's uh that's the real question mike and uh it's a big deal because doesn't exist in there it doesn't exist in there okay so let's let's backtrack a little bit the digital charter implementation act is essentially the new privacy laws we've been touting right correct okay so location is a really big deal and you've told us that many times uh companies that want our information certainly want to know where we are at what time of day how long we're there how we move you once told a great story about cell towers being put up in third world countries wow that's that's really generous no no that has nothing to do with generosity they just wanted to know how people in those countries moved so in this case what are we dealing with when it comes to location being absent from the Digital Charter Implementation Act? Another great question. Its absence from the Act is absolutely baffling to me. After having gone through it a number of times, I actually fail to see anything uh, of a significant nature that pertains to how we move, where we are, where we've been in the past, how we're moving forward. And, and, and those things are contextualized within the world of big data marketing and advertising and and because of that every day that we're using our smartphones or we're driving our cars and they're producing data which they do in abundance people are using that location data in order to build assumptions about who we are and without some insight about how those companies are using that data and most importantly how they're selling that data to different governments around the planet in the context of COVID-19, we have a a serious new paradigm of privacy concerns moving forward, Mike. And I just don't know how the Digital Charter Implementation Act is going to prepare to deal with those things. I've often heard from my colleagues in surveillance studies that the post-pandemic world will be a completely new world for surveillance. It won't look anything like the way it has since Snowden. It'll be way more aggressive. And the fundamental linchpin of that change will be location data. So I'm scratching my head here, really, and I'm I'm, I'm just shocked. I, I really think this needs to be fixed. It seems like something that couldn't be an oversight, that this is such a big part of what companies are looking for, of what privacy tends to be, that it couldn't be an oversight. Am I, you know, am I reading something into it? <laughs> 
No, no, I don't think so, Mike. I think it's important to take into account a number of things here. First of all, we know that the the gears of bureaucracy grind slowly, and that the process of policy is also quite slow as well. So when you take those things into account alone, I think it makes kind of a little bit of sense, if you will, that there may be a glaring omission. And we also have to keep in mind that the Digital Charter Implementation Act has been drafted during a really wild year. 2020 has had a lot of challenges on a number of different fronts and for a lot of different people and processes. So I think by cabling the legislation, they're necessarily encouraging people like us and the public, as well as civil rights uh, activists and representation groups like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association to actually respond. So there will be periods where people can give feedback. Nonetheless, I still find it curious that at the end of this year, given how much we've seen in terms of corporations that otherwise hate them, hate one another, like (laughs) uh, Google and Apple working together to make uh, Bluetooth contact tracing reality, that, that this language would be included, and it's just simply not there. So uh, rest assured, there are people in the privacy and surveillance studies communities that will be pressuring for these uh, considerations to be made. But as it stands right now, there is no reference to location privacy whatsoever in what is otherwise considered the most progressive privacy act in the history of the country. Wow. It almost sounds like an oxymoron the way that that comes out. <laughs> Dr. Thomas Cook joining us, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University, as we look at the new privacy legislation. As Dr. Cook describes it, it's been called the most progressive. It is the Digital Charter Implementation Act. So if this stayed the same, if they didn't have anything about location in this does it open new doors does it does it do anything that we would maybe be concerned about yeah you know i think there's a lot of different conversations we can have about potentialities mike and and the one thing that i think is really significant that will be missed is the inability for canadians to truly understand how much industrial pressure exists around the planet to see GPS chips in our smartphones become more and more accurate. Something that I've been looking into quite closely for the last two and a half years as a researcher at Queen's University is the technical capacity of something like a GPS chip in your smartphone. The way that different industries manufacturers in particular, see GPS chips on smartphones is not highly favorable. It's almost even derogatory. The chips in our phones are very low power. They're very, very small, and they create a lot of signal noise. This means that our phones, in terms of tracking devices with satellites above us, are very, very inaccurate. Now, as a privacy person, this is something that I value. Imagine you could draw a line, like a circle, around your body as you're moving in public. Within that bubble, satellites cannot be able to tell precisely where you are within a three-meter radius. That looks like good privacy to me. Now, here's the catalyst. Here's the thing that everybody's missing. Here's the big implication 
uh, in terms of a future that we will miss, a discourse that we're going to miss as Canadians if we're not paying attention. There are researchers in agriculture. There are researchers in marine biology. There are researchers in maritime navigation. There are researchers in a dozen different fields that are completely unrelated to the smartphone that are hiring engineers to figure out how to create new algorithms to make our phones, location data from satellites, more accurate. It is one of the most profitable upcoming industries in the, in the world to have all these different fields converge to make our smartphones more specific about where we are, to make that three-meter blurry circle around us a lot more precise to something like 15 to 50 centimeters. How weird is that? Wow, because for us... That that really that has no point, you know. I don't I don't need to know where I am, and if I do need to know where, you know, somebody who I'm trying to get in touch with is, I I don't need that I know that I need to know down to fifty centimeters, let alone fifteen <laughs> centimeters. I don't need to know that. It's very precise, and and the point that I'm trying to make, Mike, is very simple. These are things that are happening in the world around us right now. For the next two days, actually, in Europe. The European Space Agency will be hosting a two-day-long workshop that teaches different industries how to use smartphone GPS data in a way that's more accurate. And, and the driving point of this is for profit in the realms of advertising and marketing. If the Digital Charter Implementation Act doesn't take seriously what has happened in the last six to eight months in terms of using location data and Bluetooth contact tracing in order to figure out where people are, where they've been, and where they're going. It's really, really, really hard, I think, as a sociologist, to advance public debate and public understanding about how much industrial pressure there is in the surveillance capitalism world to make our devices more accurate. And with more accuracy, you have a privacy issue. We need the people writing this act to be acutely aware of all of the different kinds of industrial pressures around the planet to make low-power, fairly affordable GPS chips more accurate. This is a glaring omission. It's something that I'm going to be submitting to a bunch of different agencies this week to pressure the government to change. Please keep your fingers crossed in the meantime. Wow. And uh, we really appreciate you outlining this for us, given that's kind of how close you are to all of this. And it matters to all of us if location is in there and, and how it's defined. And I still don't know why someone wants to know where I am within 15 centimeters other than a company who wants to know how I'm moving. Right. It's the difference between knowing which store you're standing in front of. And to those companies, it's the difference of knowing whether or not an advertisement they have hanging in their window makes sense. And they connect that back to digital advertisements that pop up on Facebook and Google Maps as well. Should Mike Stubbs uh, be encouraged to come buy cheap booze at the LCBO? Or is the advertisement for a lunch deal at Wendy's 10 meters away going to make a difference? This is a huge, huge thing for people interested in marketing and advertising, uh, you know, bringing the online and the physical purchasing worlds together. So those those small Bits of centimeters and meters discrepancies, Mike, they're huge to some people who are interested in profiting off of this information. What a world. Dr. Cook, thank you for the time. We'll talk soon. My pleasure. Have a great week, London. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both in Queens. 
When we look at food security and we look at food distribution systems, those were thrown off kilter right from the beginning. Remember the stories of pouring out milk because milk wasn't getting through the supply chains and there were farms having to get rid of it? And you think, what are you doing? It's like at the end of the day when a bakery or a restaurant has to throw out food because it wasn't used like they thought. They can't give it away because it may not be healthy or you can't guarantee, you know, there's a liability almost that you can't guarantee how that food will be or whether or not it will be healthy. A lot of wild things go on in our world when we look at disposal of food. We talk every once in a while with Dr. Paul Vanderwerf about food waste and the fact that the average Canadian tosses $600 worth of food. That's like a month's grocery for a lot of families 600 bucks and we're just throwing that away because oh i forgot i bought that salami and it's way in the back of the fridge whoever designed refrigerators we needed to talk to them we why were that why were refrigerators and freezers not clear completely clear and i don't mean clear i mean you can see through that's what we need. Why aren't they on a lazy Susan and they revolve? What, who built these things? They are poorly engineered. We need, a, we need a remodeling of refrigerators and freezers so that we stop throwing out as much food because it gets caught. It gets stuck in there. Well, there is an awful lot to look at with regard to our food systems. And we're not going to get as detailed as refrigerators and freezers, but we are going to look at food insecurity. We are going to look at food access. And we're going to do it with the help of Dr. Kent Mullenix from the Kwantlen Polytechnic University, where he is the Director of Sustainable Horticulture and Food. And we're going to do that right now because we're lucky enough to have Dr. Mullenix with us. Dr. Mullenix, how are things? Uh, doing well. Good morning or afternoon for you. Well, for us, yeah, but if you want to give us an extra hour of time, we'll take it. We'll absolutely, we'll take it. Um, when we look at getting food from one place to another, we often take for granted that we can walk into the grocery store and say, you know what I feel like tonight? That. Ooh, look, it's on sale too. That's fantastic. And we take that completely for granted but we have seen signs during this pandemic that make us want to learn more about food delivery food insecurity certainly and there are other ways to look at that too and that we've got all kinds of people who would be in a position where food insecurity exists on a whole other level dr mullenix how informative do you feel the pandemic has been in exposing some of what we rely on so that we can walk into the store and go, I feel like having that tonight. Well, that's one of the positive outcomes of the pandemic. It has gotten folks thinking about food like they have not thought about it before. And specifically, it has motivated them to think of, about where their food comes from, who's benefiting from their food purchases, the supply chain and and its uh, ability to be maintained. And and I think uh, most most importantly it's it's really brought back to the forefront that 
our existence, our ability to thrive, is dependent on our food source. There's a direct relationship between our ability to thrive and our ability to access wholesome, nutritious food. And it is as simple as that, and yet we uh, we don't seem to focus on food security a whole lot. Are you optimistic that that changes, or would we need something even more horrible to happen in order for people to say, you know, we should really change this? No, no. Actually, I think um, I think that that this this is really brought to the forefront the vulnerabilities of our food system and the nature of our food system. It has also brought to the forefront the inequities of access to food in our in our food system. We we literally have developed a food system which we say uh, feeds the world and provides uh, inexpensive uh, food to everyone. And in fact, it doesn't. In Canada, 10% of the population is food insecure, which by general definition means they're concerned or do not know where their next meal is going to come from. 10% of our population. And, and, and food insecurity exists in every country around the world. Uh, in in some in some places, uh, greater food insecurity uh, than uh, is experienced than in, than in others. But the fact of the matter is, we've developed a food system that is designed to feed those who can afford to buy the food that uh, is provided, and uh, and or who can uh, physically access it. Uh, readily so so uh, uh, that's another that's another positive of the pandemic it has re- revealed the inequities in our food system and of course which are a reflection of the of the deep uh, profound inequities in our economic system and and in society as a whole and this is a good thing because we're going we're we're now we're talking about it now more than we ever have before and um, so, so between the inequities in our food system and the vulnerabilities of this uh, food system and the, and the fact that our food system literally constitutes all our eggs in one basket has got people really thinking about our food system future and how it's going to be the foundation of sustainable, just society. And that's that's really what we need to be talking about relative to food and our food system. Dr. Kent Mullenix is with us from Kwantlen Polytechnic University, where he's the director of sustainable horticulture and food. So let's talk about some of the vulnerabilities. What do you see as being the vulnerabilities that need the most attention right now? There are several, uh, actually numerous. Uh, in, in not a particular priority, one vulnerability is that our food system is controlled by a handful of transnational corporations. We have allowed our food system to be controlled uh, oligopolistically, and we need to put an end to that. We have developed a, a food system that externalizes 
all sorts of social, environmental, and economic uh, transgressions, which, which means that uh, we can buy our food and not think about uh, agrochemical pollution that occurs on the other side of the world. We can buy our food and not think about the um, uh, the labor standards in the places that they were produced. We can buy our food and not think about the fact that uh, uh, former peasant landowners in South America are are being displaced from their uh, uh, traditional lands. So that, so that soybeans can be grown for cattle feed. Uh, we, we get to ignore all of, all of that. We um, get to ignore the fact that, that farmers in Canada are barely making a living, if they're making a living at all, playing in this transnational food system uh, environment. We get to ignore that uh, agriculture land, a precious natural resource, is uh, not well cared for and, and not, not maintained. So, so there's all sorts of um, uh, external costs to our food that, that we don't think about and, and that are a threat. In Canada, We've, like other industrialized uh, food system nations, we become dependent on uh, foreign labor in our food system instead of instead of our our food system agriculture and food system uh, relying on our our providing uh, good paying uh, jobs for our citizens. The economics of it is predicated on on. Uh, Bringing in foreign labor, uh, and so so there there are there are all sorts of, of these things that uh, pose threats to our food system. The the uh, the one that has been revealed by the pandemic is is the long supply chains, and the fact that if at any one point that supply chain is disrupted. Our food supply is disrupted. Is there a way, Dr. Molinix, back from that? Because if we're to look at some of the mega corporations that you point out that run a lot of the farming that happens, it's not like they're going to say, hey, on Saturday we're going to be selling off pieces and you can become a farmer. It doesn't work well, that way. So have we gone too far? Well, uh, we've gone a long way. And and it's and it's a, it's there's a tough road to hoe ahead to to reform agriculture and the food system. But no, we haven't gone too far. Good. And and, and the um, and absolutely, and my work at the Institute for Sustainable Food Systems is focused on uh, bringing forth regionalized, bioregionalized food systems, and uh, we we're busy making the case that that re-regionalizing our food systems uh, has the promise of, of bringing back uh, prosperity, enhancing our economy, enhancing our communities, 
creating jobs and providing uh, uh, wholesome, nutritious food. How does that uh, begin? For, well, it begins by this. This sounds uh, real cliche,ish but it begins by people understanding uh, the ramifications of their food buying choices, and and when you are focused exclusively on on the cheapest food, you you you, you automatically buy into one kind of system. So what I'm suggesting is that people need to think about their food choices, where their food dollars go, and they need to go to directly to supporting local regional farming and food businesses as opposed to transnational corporations. So learn where that they, food comes from. Absolutely. Yep. So so that that is one thing that people need to do we need to have our our all levels of government focused on developing and actualizing the potentials of regional food systems as opposed to transnational food systems we have the economy we have because of the visions that resulted in policy that created it this economic and food system is our creation predicated on a vision and and and, and individuals uh, objectives economic and social objectives we can have different economic and social objectives and we need the policy at all levels of government to reflect that and when that happens the, the shift in our food system will be automatic. Love it. Dr. Mullenix, thank you so much for the automatic. work that you do, and we really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Oh, my, my pleasure. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully we'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you. That is Dr. Kent Mullenix from Kwantlen Polytechnic University, where he's the Director of Sustainable Horticulture and Food. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.